If you have, if you've seen me, if you've watched uh, one of my sermons live before, when you settle into your chair, how how do you anticipate uh, me beginning? What do I usually start with? If you've been coming for a while, I usually start with some kind of sermon illustration. Isn't that true? And then I usually, I, I usually throw one or two other sermon illustrations in during the rest of the time. My guess is, uh, for a lot of you, that is your favorite part of, uh, of our sermon time, especially the, the illustrations I use right at the beginning, because you're still awake for those, which is important for the enjoyment of an illustration. But, but what, are those, what are those for? What's the purpose of a sermon illustration? Is it just to to say something that makes people laugh so maybe they will come back again later? Uh, is it just to, to give an interesting story? Well, by definition, an, an illustration is, is a story or an example that helps an audience picture some abstract concept that's being taught. If you think of a children's book, the illustrations in those books are pictures that are, that are there so that the kids who don't read well yet uh, have a better understanding of what those words are saying. In a sermon or in any kind of speech, an illustration is just a word picture that helps us grasp some concept that's being taught. Uh, a good illustration, I, I say, is like a coat hook that lets us hang doctrine on it. Jesus was the best storyteller ever. Uh, his, his illustrations, we call them parables, his were made-up stories that he used to, to teach a real point. Uh, and, and they work. They're helpful. Um, many of us maybe can't recite uh, a verse that teaches how we should be uh, kind, we should be good to people who are hurting. Maybe we can't uh, quote a verse like that. But if you've heard the story of the Good Samaritan, you have a picture of what that is supposed to look like. Maybe we can't recite a verse that, that teaches that God will always forgive us when we confess, when we repent, when we turn to Him. Maybe we can't quote a verse that teaches that doctrine. But if you've heard the, the story of the prodigal son, you can see the picture of that father who represents God running down the road to embrace his prodigal son that teaches us the doctrine in a way that sometimes the words just can't, or the doctrine itself um, is more memorable that way. Well, for the record, I just gave a sermon illustration about sermon illustrations, so there's some next-level stuff going on here. Uh, either that or I'm out of ideas. It's one of those two things. Um, but, there, but there's a reason. Where we, where we open in the book of Romans today, Romans chapter 4, Paul has been teaching his major doctrine, his major point that he wants to teach. It's, Paul's been teaching that the gospel is the way that God's power, the only way God's power will point at people in a way where they are, where they are rescued by God or counted acceptable by God instead of being condemned by God. That salvation, justification, God deeming people righteous, comes just as an act of God's grace to those who believe by grace through faith in Jesus. Uh, Paul taught that, and uh, we've studied it. We studied it a couple weeks ago. This on your screen is, is just part of what I call maybe the most important paragraph in the entire Bible. 
Martin Luther said that uh, this paragraph was, was like the crux of the whole scripture. And they're about the righteousness that's required for people to gain eternal life. Paul wrote this. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And God's fair. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. We're all in the same boat. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That's sort of Paul's main idea in this book. And if you'd like to learn more about the main idea of this book, if you get on our website, imperialberean.org, and click the sermons tab, you find the, the sermon I gave on March 8th, 3-8-2020. Um, I, I taught, I said much more about, about this paragraph, but that's his main idea. That's the doctrine Paul wants to, to teach. And then last week, in, in verses 27 to the end of, of chapter 3, Paul said, because God's plan for salvation, that he, that he gives people the free gift of being counted as righteous, as good enough, as acceptable in his judgment to those who believe, that removes our ability to boast. No Christian should or really can have any boast about how special I am to God because of what I've done. Because I was just given a, a free gift of justification. That was, that was last week's sermon. Uh, we're declared righteous by faith, apart from the works of the law, Paul said. We are like, I quoted the, the late Warren Wearsby, who said uh, that, that we uh, as Christians, we're like a, a drowning swimmer. Uh, Wearsby said, the swimmer, when he is saved from drowning, does not then brag because he trusted the lifeguard. What else could he do? That is us. We're saved by grace, alone, through faith, alone, in Christ, alone. And we have no then room to boast. Well, at that point, that's where we're at as we open this morning. Paul thinks a sermon illustration might be useful. And so today he's going to give us two illustrations, two true stories from the Old Testament, one about Abraham and one about King David, that Paul thinks proves his argument that salvation is by being a gift of God's grace to those who believe. That's where we're at. Uh, let's, let's read our passage together, Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. On the screen is the, the New American Standard Bible that reads this way. What shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, our ancestor, what did he find? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Because for what does the scripture say? It says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor or grace, but it's what is due. Verse 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man who, whom God credits righteousness apart from works, here's what David said. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. That's our passage that we're going to study this morning. 
Paul, his first sermon illustration to, to illustrate the, the, the justification being counted righteous by God as a gift from God to those who believe. He's going to use Father Abraham as, as his illustration. I call this the Abraham test. Paul introduces it in verse 1 of chapter 4. So, so what should we say about Abraham, our ancestor, just through lineage, those of us who are Jews, Paul says, what did he discover regarding this matter, regarding the way to God, regarding how is God going to look at people and say, this one's good enough for me to accept into eternal life? What did Abraham figure out there? For if Abraham, Abraham verse 2, was declared righteous by God but because his behavior was good enough, then he has something to boast about, and I want to stop right there. Here's what Paul is saying. This is the test. Paul has argued already that salvation is a gift that God just gives to those who believe, and if that's true, because God doesn't change, it should have always been that way. So if I hold up Abraham as an example, if Abraham was saved by grace through faith, then that proves my point. But if Abraham was saved any other way, then you or I should probably try to be saved the way Abraham was saved. That's the test. And, and if Abraham, if he was accepted by God because he was good enough, then that should be the goal for you and me. And everything Paul has taught so far is wrong. That's the test. And Paul can't help himself. At the end of verse 2, he just says, but not before God. Abraham can't offer that boast before God. I, I want to tell you the Jews of Paul's day by and large, disagreed with Paul. If we look at the, the rabbinical writings, which are really a later written record of earlier tradition, uh, we would read this about Abraham. Uh, and I quote, Abraham did the whole law before it was given. And, and later, uh, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord. In other words, the Jews believed Abraham was in eternal life, but the Jews did not believe Abraham was, was saved because they didn't believe Abraham needed to be saved. They believed he was good enough. That God, at his judgment, said, you're righteous because look how you have behaved. That's what the Jews of Paul's day, by and large, believed about Abraham. And Paul is saying something different. That's the test. Makes sense so far? How was Abraham saved? So Paul says, let's go back into the book of Genesis. Let's go back to the story of Abraham and see what the Bible says about how Abraham was, was deemed righteous by God. Verse 3, Paul says, what does the scripture say? And then he quotes from Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul doesn't tell the story of where this quote comes from. He doesn't tell the Genesis 15 story. There's enough Jews in the, in the church in Rome that Paul doesn't feel the need to, to explain the story. They all know but I want to share it with you just, just briefly. God promised from the very beginning, from the first sin, that he would send a savior that would be a human being, a descendant of the first woman. Um, and that, that savior had to be born somewhere if he was going to be a descendant of Eve. And in Genesis chapter 12, God picked a guy named Abraham and, and told him some promises. His name was Abram back then. God changed his name to Abraham and and. The promises God made to Abraham included these. There were more, but God promised, Abraham, you're, you're going to have many, many descendants. And I'm going to bless the entire world, all the families of the earth, 
through your descendants. And, and we now know the way God blessed the whole earth through Abraham's descendants was to bring Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, through Israel. Israel is the, the, the many descendants God made out of, out of Abraham. So that was God's promise. That was in chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they were already old, and Abraham was barren. She, she had not been able to have children her entire life. But if we fast forward to Genesis chapter 15, 25 years elapse between when God promised, I'm going to give you descendants, and chapter 15. And by that time, the Bible tells us Abraham was 100 years old. And his wife, Sarah, was 90 years old. And she wasn't able to have children when she was a young woman. And so, understandably, um, Abraham was, was doubting this promise God had made him that he would have many descendants. I don't know if you're aware of this, but before you can have many descendants, you have to have one first. And they didn't have one. And they weren't just too old to have children. They were way, way past too old to possibly have children. And so Abraham had begun to doubt that God would keep his promise. And then, this is why I have this picture on the screen. One night, as in Abraham's doubt, God spoke to Abraham and, and said, Abraham, why don't you go outside on this clear, dark night? And, and God said, basically, Abraham, look up and count all those stars. And of course, Abraham said, I, I couldn't possibly count those stars. There's far too many. And God said, Abraham, you're not going to be able to count your descendants either. I'm going to keep my promise. You're going to have lots and lots of descendants. And that's when we read this verse that Paul quotes in Romans 4.3, Genesis 15.6 says, Abraham believed God. And God credited or reckoned Abraham righteous because Abraham believed that God would do this impossible thing that God promised. That's what Abraham believed. That when he was 100 and his wife was 90, they were going to have a baby. This might be the first time you've ever heard that story. Maybe you've heard this story in the past. Maybe you've read it in Genesis. Does that story sound a little hard to believe? You ever read that story and think, that, I mean, there's, there's just no way. I think you're reading it correctly. That's part of the point. God did this this way because it was not humanly possible. That's what a miracle is. A lot of people who don't like the Bible, don't like Christianity, they, they point to passages like this and say, see, this, this thing is just a made-up legend. It's a myth. There's no way a 90-year-old woman could have a child to a 100-year-old man, when they, especially when they've never been able to have children before. That's impossible. Exactly. That's why God did this. Abraham was, God was asking Abraham to believe that God could do something impossible by bringing this miracle baby into the world. And and this points to what God wants us to believe. Because the content of our faith is different than the content, content of Abraham's faith. We don't have to believe that God's going to give us children when we're 100. We're supposed to believe in another miracle baby that God brought into the world through Abraham's descendants. We're supposed to believe in Jesus. And, and when we believe in Jesus, we're believing something that's way more impossible than two really old people having a child. Because we believe that God could look at, at sinners like you and me 
and judge us. He, he knows everything we've ever done. And he can judge us, judge us in the courtroom of heaven as if we're righteous. He can drop the gavel and say, Matt Maxwell, or insert your name here, I consider him completely righteous legally. That's way more impossible than two really old people having a baby. But that, that's why God uses Abraham, or excuse me, Paul uses Abraham as his illustration. Abraham believed, and God credited Abraham's account as if he were completely righteous. That's when Abraham was judged as righteous. Salvation is a gift of God that he gives to people who believe. Now, if that were not true, it, if, if people can be saved by their own level of obedience, if I can be saved, if I can stand before God and he can count me righteous based on how I've lived, uh, my morality, uh, the religious things I have done, and, and anything like that, then what Paul has been teaching is not true. That's what Paul talks about in verse 4. In verse 4, this is like an illustration within an illustration. Paul says, now the one who works, his pay is not credited due to grace, but due to obligation. If you have a job, and during, during your next pay period, if you work hard, uh, and when you get your paycheck, you're not getting a free gift of your employer's grace. You are getting what is due to you for the work you have done. Paul says, if if our salvation can be obtained based on how we work, based on our behavior, then salvation is not by grace. It's due to obligation. But Paul doesn't agree with that. That's what he's been teaching. That's his main point in this book of Romans. But you know, many millions of people are going to stand before God, and they are going to get what they deserve, what they've earned. And that's going to be eternal separation from God. It's not going to be good. The one who works, his pay is going to be what he deserves. That's Romans 1, 2, and 3. We spent months studying those. Paul went out of his way to teach us that there is, he sums it up this way, there's none righteous, not even one. You know the Bible says that in three different places? If you want to stand before God someday and hope that he tells you your good has so far outweighed your bad that I consider you righteous, and, and righteousness is the requirement for eternal life. If you are depending upon your goodness, your morality, your religious work, to hear God say, give you a, a, a verdict of righteousness, the Bible has bad news. You're not going to make it. Neither am I. There's no one righteous. We are all without excuse before God. That's where our lives, that we make this life about ourselves and not about God. We've all done it. That leaves us in a very bad place before God. If God will give us what we deserve, it will be separation. It will be hell forever and ever and ever. But, but, Paul says that's not going to be the destination for everyone. That there is another option. There are people who are going to be in eternal life with God forever and ever. But those won't be people who have gotten what they deserve for how they have lived. 
the people who get into eternal life actually get what Jesus deserved for the way he lived. You know that? Before I click to the next screen, the next verse, guess what kind of person do you think would, would get from God the reward that Jesus Christ deserved for the way Jesus lived? How good would you have to be to get that kind of reward? Well, Romans 4, verse 5 is a fantastic verse of Scripture. If you've never memorized a verse of Scripture, I want to nominate Romans 4, 5. It's amazing. It says this, But to the one who does not work, but believes in the one who declares the ungodly to be righteous, that person's faith is credited, is reckoned as righteousness. According to just this verse on the screen, what is, who does Paul say is the kind of person who gets rescued by God, who gets deemed as, as righteous by God? Paul says a few things about what kind of person gets deemed righteous by God. First, Paul says it's one who does not work. If you've ever wondered how good I have to be, how good you have to be for God to accept you, the answer is right here. You can't work enough. The, the, the gift of righteousness goes to somebody who's not working to try to be good enough for God to accept. The one who does not work is reckoned as righteous. Why? Because it's a non-work that allows, that, 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 that sort of pushes God to count us as righteous. It's a non-work. It's faith. This translation says, but believes. The one who believes, and, and we two weeks ago in that very important paragraph, we talked about that, why that faith has to be in Jesus Christ and what he did at the cross. But faith alone, a non-work, is what causes God to count us as righteous. And look what Paul says in this verse we have to believe. We, we are believing that God declares the ungodly to be righteous. There's a reason we call this amazing grace. There's a reason in, in sort of our branch of Christianity we call someone who's redeemed, who's going to heaven, being saved, because we're rescued from our ungodliness. Uh, that, that word ungodly could be translated wicked. Paul says God declares the wicked to be righteous. You know what God's opinion is of every single person he rescues, he saves, he redeems, he declares to be righteous? His opinion is not, you know, Maxwell, you've, uh, you started with this kind of righteousness, but you've gotten slowly better. You've improved. You've done your church attendance is good. Heck, you became a pastor. You've done enough good things that now I declare you righteous. That is not when God declared Matt Maxwell to be righteous. God's opinion of me when he declared me to be righteous is that I was ungodly. I was wicked. That's the only kind of person God declares to be righteous. The ungodly. And the good news is we all qualify. If we went back and read Romans 1, 2, and 3 again, that's what Paul is trying to convince us. First, we are ungodly. We are the wicked compared to God's uh, unbelievable, holy perfection. But when we believe, 
God credits our account. He counts our faith as if it was a lifetime of perfection. That's the gospel. That's amazing grace. We believe in a God who declares as righteous ungodly people like me and like you. And to show that is true, Paul is just going to quickly bring, give one more illustration, one more sermon illustration. Up to this point, he's been talking about a guy named Abraham that a lot of people believed was like the best person to ever walk the earth, or one of them, on the short list. And it's pretty easy to think, well, of course, Abraham was accepted by God because he was such a good guy. Even though, I don't have time to tell you the stories, Abraham had his, his problems too. But next, Paul sort of pulls out from behind his back King David as his example. And it's like he asks, especially the Jews in his audience, hey, raise your hand if you think David is in heaven. You know, I think everybody would, would raise their hand. Once David is the example, if Paul can show that David is in eternal life, it cannot be because of David's moral righteousness. Because David's sins were, were too many, they were too big. They were too serious. They brought too many consequences. David uh, committed, adult, committed adultery with his, one of his best friend's wives. He had him murdered. In so doing, he uh, committed treason against the country and against his own army because he allowed an entire unit of the army of Israel to be overrun and destroyed by the enemy. It brought great consequences on the whole nation. I mean, this is an incredible scandal. David, there's no way David was in heaven because he was good enough to get there. And that's what Paul says next, verses 6 through 8. Paul says, this is how David talks. Righteousness is somewhere, somewhere else besides our own behavior. David talks about the, the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from their, their works, their behavior. And this is David's words from Psalm 32, David says, The real blessed person, blessed, are those whose all those lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. That's the blessed person. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will never count their sin. Those two illustrations, those are Paul's sermon illustrations that illustrate our salvation, our hope comes in faith alone in what Jesus did at the cross alone. There's not going to be one single person in eternal life except for Jesus himself who was there because he or she was so was good enough that God at, at, at their judgment could look at them and say, your behavior means you earned eternal life. Every single one of us who are in eternal life will be there because Jesus paid the penalty our sins deserve at the cross. Our sin have already been, has already been punished. We sought refuge from the wrath of God through the cross of Jesus Christ, and we believe through the cross that God justifies ungodly people like us. That's the gospel. That's our hope. You know, Christianity, what we're trying to do here, the church... Um, the gospel, the Bible. This stuff is not where we come to learn 
all the, the, the righteous churchy things we have to do so that God will like us, so that God will accept us. It's not the list of do's and the don'ts. And if we do them well enough, we just hope at the end that God will say, you have done enough. But that's not what we're doing here. Christianity, the gospel, is this. The one who does not work for his own righteousness, but believes in a God who justifies the ungodly, his or her faith is credited as righteousness. Where you are at uh, this morning, if you're watching this live or whenever you, you play this later, I just want to ask you to consider what are you depending upon when, that when you stand in judgment and, and, the, and the, the files are open and your life is reviewed or however it works, what are you depending upon for your verdict with the judge of the universe? Are you still hoping that you have done enough good things that outweigh your bad? That you've been a good person, that you're a better person than most of the churchgoers you know? Think about it. Consider that. Because if Paul is right, that's not who gets in. It's the one who does not work for their righteous position before God, but believes that God can count as righteous people who are ungodly. And, and the way God does that is through and only through the cross of Jesus Christ. It is this, a display of God's righteousness. Remember, the gospel is not, Christianity is not you trying to prove to God that you are good enough for God to save, for God to accept. The gospel is how God demonstrates that he was good enough to save you by giving his one and only son to die under the punishment you deserved and I deserved. That is the gospel. Would you pray with me? And we'll close. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ, that you were good enough and faithful enough, that you were just and you punished our sin, but just not on us, on Jesus. And God, thank you that you did something impossible. You made a way to forgive, to justify ungodly people like me, and like everyone listening to this message. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts to help us believe this gospel, that you might count us as righteous. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thank you for being with me. Thank you for um, being with Imperial Berean Church uh, as we meet in the way we've met. Um, hope to see you next week at the same time. Um, and then after that, moving forward, we will see. You can always find more of our messages on the sermon tab at imperialberean.org. And uh, other than that, uh, glad you were here. Consider these words, watch it again, and believe in the God who justifies the ungodly. And you and I both qualify as that. All right, thanks for being here. God bless.